This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. lost one of my planned guests for this evening's show, but for good reason. Actor and director Richard Harris has made a considerable contribution to the local theatre scene since arriving in Columbia a few years ago. And now he is expanding his reach across Missouri to St. Louis, where he is appearing at the Black Rep Theatre of St. Louis in their upcoming production of the August Wilson play Jitney. He had been scheduled to play a relatively minor character, but this week was offered the huge role of Turnbow, so he is deep in learning mode as the show opens next Wednesday. I hope we might have a chance to catch up with him later this month. Staying on the topic of theatre, this weekend is your last chance to catch the excellent Fun Home at Talking Horse Productions. It's been two years in the making and is not only masterfully performed, but also brilliantly and intimately staged in the small black box theatre. Get a ticket while you still can. For the next hour, we've got our usual eclectic arts tour, the history of fashion in Missouri, the launch of four new public artworks and one of my favourite interviews to do, an arts exit interview with a super talented young musical theatre and opera performer. So if you have your margaritas in hand and a bowl of tortilla chips at the ready, let's start tonight in the world of Missouri fashion. Back when I first met my husband in 2005, he was a shirt tucker in To my eye, it definitely looked a bit 1983 flashdowns and I suggested the untucked look, but he thought that looked unkempt. How about tucked in but kind of blues-owned out, I suggested, a look which we ended up calling the Missouri Compromise. (laughs) It was not a strong moment in the history of Missouri fashion, but a new exhibit at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia reminds us that Missouri's fashion roots are long and deep. The bicentennial exhibit titled Moda 200, Missouri Style Makers, Merchants and Memories, celebrates the state's often overlooked history of apparel and reminds us that for a time, Missouri was the world's largest primary market for fur, the country's second largest garment producer, its second largest millinery center and its largest manufacturer of junior dresses. The exhibit is curated by Nicole Johnson of the Missouri Historic Costume and Textile Collection, and I am delighted to have her back on the show. Hello, Nicole. Hello, Diana. Thank you for having me. I'm going to take a wild stabbing guess here and say that if you ask the average American or even the average Missourian how influential Missouri was as a fashion centre... They would wonder why you were even asking. But there are so many interesting facts in this exhibit. What was the most surprising discovery for you? Oh, goodness. They actually just kept coming. I didn't even know. I've been in Missouri for the past 30 years, and I didn't know many of these things. And the more research I did, the more 
that I learned about our state's history. Missouri has had some very influential moments, and they don't teach that in school in the state here. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. Where did you find all this? Was this in within your own collection, but just hadn't really been put together into a cohesive set of thoughts? Or were you traveling all over the state and, and ferreting through other museums' information to put it together? Well, one of the early avenues of information was actually a book titled Ready to Wear, A History of the Footwear and Garment Industries in St. Louis. And I recognized, I bought the book for the collection and I was reading through that and I was recognizing many of the manufacturers and labels that we had in our collection that were being discussed in the book. And the book went into decades of St. Louis history. And that was one of the beginning touch points for me for our own exhibit was this fabulous book. And you just happened upon this book and lo, an exhibit was born. Yes, because I had been wanting to do something for the Bicentennial. And her book was just a great, because there were businesses that I had not heard about before a lot of the manufacturers that I hadn't known. And so it was, oh my gosh, it was weeks of learning and reading and, but it was fun. There's a lot of companies that you mention in the exhibits that were, you know, the world's largest or, or they founded a certain industry. Is that information easily available about those companies? Or is it really buried in time at this point? Some of it's buried. One of the interesting sources is actually um, the historic building applications. They will go into extensive detail about the variety of businesses that existed in that building. And I used a lot of those. But yeah, it's just getting into the paperwork at the State Historical Society in Kansas City or St. Louis. Um, It's not as easily available as one would think. Lots of newspapers, <laughs> advertisements, and and things like that. So it takes some time. It's, it's not as easy to find as one would want. When you think back to the history of the settlers' expansion into Native American lands, it makes sense that fur was a principal trading item. But it is staggering to think that in the 1920s, it was a $1 billion dollar in the 1920s, a $1 billion industry, and that warehouses in St. Louis in 1920 contained 20 million pelts, which was half of the entire world's available supply. And those pelts varied seal, mm-hmm. bizarrely, mink, mole, squirrel, badger, Apparently, house cat might have been amongst them too. And of course, this was long before, long before animal rights had made fur a fashion faux pas. But tell us a little bit about the St. Louis fur scene at the turn of the last century. Well, St. Louis, being on the Missouri River, had a significant role in this the development of this industry. There was easy access to shipping and trade, and it just blossomed. The, the millinery centers were also taking advantage of the furs and the feathers and the laces and everything that were, that were coming through on the river. And it was just, it was very easy access. It just grew quite significantly. But I mean, it's a long way from the rest of the world to St. Louis. It's, you would think that 
a major center for products that are being exported all over the world would be a little closer to the edges of America. Was there something in the geographical makeup of St. Louis, like the water or anything else that made it suitable for fur? Well, there was quite a bit of land. And Europe, at various points, had been utilizing their animal populations quite extensively. For example, beaver. So there were populations of animals in North America that were in so much abundance. That was one of the reasons why our market became so large and so popular. And then there were shoes, with St. Louis being home to the world's largest shoe factory by the 1920s, I think. And in the 1920s, Washington Avenue was known as Shoe Street USA. I mean, again, I guess they had the leather, but was there anything specific that made St. Louis such a a dominant force in the shoe industry? Well, the city had been there for quite a while, and it was one of those gateways to people moving west. So there were shoe producers had established themselves fairly early in St. Louis. And again, the river with the goods, easy access, And it was a city that you could get the machinery, you had the population, and it was just, it was a good fit for that industry. I'm guessing that much of Missouri's fashion history is centered around St. Louis and Kansas City because of the river connection. Were there any fashion design or manufacturing hubs away from those two cities? Yes, there were. As early as 1860, we we saw our first woolen mill towards Kansas City. Watkins Woolen Mill was as early as 1860. We had um, Stetson Manufacturing uh, was in St. Joseph. St. Joseph had a few manufacturing facilities. Columbia had a few manufacturing facilities. There were a couple of shoe manufacturing plants here in Columbia for a while. And in the 1940s, Kansas City had become known as the Paris of the Plains, So again, how did Kansas City, this town in the middle of the country, become (laughs) so influential as a fashion center? Well, I think one of those reasons is exactly what you said. It was the middle of the country, both Kansas City and St. Louis. And if you can manufacture in the center, you don't have to transport as far in either direction, in any direction, right? Mm. So I think the central location was one of the key factors. But as people had settled, had been going through St. Louis and settling in St. Louis, but also moving westward, um, Kansas City was another early city that had begun manufacturing early. And there were larger populations. There were larger immigrant populations in these larger cities as well, which helped keep some of the, the costs, the manufacturing costs down. And more seamstresses available, presumably, too. Yes, One of the things I found fascinating in the exhibit was the fact that junior apparel was so firmly linked with St. Louis and junior apparel meaning women's wear, young women's wear. Tell us a little bit about how an Austrian-born merchandise manager for a department store changed fashion history. Oh, that was such a unique situation. There was, as early as the 1920s, manufacturers were looking at women's sizing, (laughs) That has never gone away. Mm. Um, But they were looking at more junior sizing, getting some different different sizing in women's clothing. And the manufacturer, one of the junior manufacturers in St. Louis, 
figured he would go straight to the source, and he went to Washington University in St. Louis and spoke with the fashion department there, which was in the School of Art at the time, and spoke with the students and had them help design, help them make. They even went into many of the junior wear manufacturing facilities right out of college. It was an incredibly unique collaboration that arose between the junior wear manufacturers and Washington University. It was pretty impressive. But it was the idea that prior to this manager going to speak to the students at WashU and saying, hey, uh, would you design something for young women, that there really wasn't any junior apparel. And that was only in the late 1920s. So it really begs the question, what were young women wearing before the advent of junior apparel? Regular misses sizing that they would have altered to fit them, essentially. The ready-to-wear pieces like the separate tops and bottoms that you could easily adjust for your size. But it wasn't only the sizing that he revolutionized. It was the idea that designs should be made specifically for younger people, that they shouldn't necessarily be wearing what their grandmothers are wearing. Right? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. He, he said it was a state of mind and not just a size. <laughs> Another moment of Missouri creativity that was brilliant uh, in the exhibit was the filing of a patent in 1924 by a mill worker for, quote, a sack, the cloth of which is adapted to be used for dress goods after the product has been removed or consumed. Tell us about feed sack fashion. Well, feed sack fashion really emerged because there was a need. If you could not access pre-cut fabric or pre-made clothing at the store, you had to make do with what was available. And that was feed sack, that was flour sack. And these creative farm women utilized these, these sacks, these cotton sacks that had often had unique prints on them, and they would collect them so they would have enough to make a um, men's, women's, or children's clothing. But presumably these cotton sacks had brands on them or names of products on them. Were they just plain or, I mean, it seems odd walking around in a little dress that has, I don't know, King Arthur flower or something written on it. <laughs> we actually have a pair of 1920s feed sack drawers that were made from the very plain cotton. And you can see all of the stamps <laughs> on them, the original manufacturing stamps. But um, the feed sack manufacturers caught on to the fact that women were using these sacks in this manner, and they started adding more colorful prints and taking off so much of their own labels and only putting them in certain locations. So there was more printed fabric available on the sacks that could be utilized for clothing. And so like, there was gingham sacks and prettier patterning on the sack. Yes. But this was a Missouri mill worker that came up with this idea and filed a patent for it. Yes. It's awesome. <laughs> I love that one of the dresses you have in the exhibit is from 2021. Although it was not made in Missouri, it was collected by the Missouri Historic Textile and Costume Collection's Timely Response Collecting Strategy. Tell us about the gold sequin evening gown owned by Zachary Wilmore. Oh, that's one of my favorites. That was a very last minute addition, actually. We didn't acquire the garment until February, that same year that we installed the exhibit the next month in March. 
But um, Zachary Wilmore was brought to my attention because he became, in October of 2021, he was Rockbridge High School's first male homecoming queen. And he wore this beautiful hand-sewn gold sequin dress that was made by a, a woman in Florida, I believe, who she had made it for a wedding. And he purchased it on Poshmark and had one of his high school friends alter it for him. But we did acquire that as you mentioned, part of that timely response collecting strategy and also for our Notable Missourians and Tigers collection. So Zach is is a Notable Missourian now, and he was very excited to have his gown in the collection and featured in the exhibit. Yeah, it's a lovely addition. What is the timely response collecting strategy? What else is in it? (laughs) (laughs) We actually initiated that collecting strategy as a result of the pandemic. Originally, we were collecting masks. We have a Black Lives Matter mask, some 3D printed masks that were made by the Department of Engineering here at Mizzou, and mask kits that our textile apparel management grad students and faculty helped cut the fabric portions for these mask kits. So that's actually what started the collecting policy in that manner. It was to acquire important objects as the events were happening. And we have a couple of pieces from student protests in 2020. And then, of course, Zach's most recent garment from 2021. So with the exhibit, I mean, I'm wondering if there was anything else you might have liked to include had more space been available, because you know, space is always at a premium. I'm sure you couldn't fit in everything that you would like. What was on the cusp of making it into the collection? <laughs> this actually, I think it was the hardest exhibit I've ever had to put together because Obviously, it's over 200 years of history, and we actually installed the exhibit in fall of 2021 in our Gwyn Hall exhibit case. And so some of the pieces, when we transferred it to the Center for Missouri Studies, some of those pieces didn't make it into the exhibit because of the layout of the gallery space. So I actually had to take out pieces, like one of our quilts that had the feedback back on the backside, Um, the cotton drawers that I mentioned in the 1920s. Feed sack drawers, they're so fun, and I so desperately wanted to put them in there. (laughs) But I just, the, the, the space is a unique space. They generally work with 2D work, and so when you put 3D items in there, it condenses the space a little bit, and it was a challenge for me. And there were several pieces that I had wanted to put in, like the feed sack drawers. Um, there was a an Angelica Corporation World War II nursing uniform that we ended up removing from the exhibit. I'm creating an online version of the exhibit, which will have some more of the related artwork, because I did also want to include the illustrations that you saw by Patricia George that are on the exhibit panels. Those are actual illustrations that we received from her. And I had wanted to put those in the exhibit, but spacing, I couldn't get that organized the way that I wanted. So they'll be featured online in the online version. I do love that you do have one painting by Columbia artist Fred Shane, and it's of a window scene, probably in, I don't know, the 1940s or 50s, and it's a a window of, of dresses. And I was looking at that for ages, trying to work out where it might be in Colombia. Do you have any insights into that? <laughs> um, that was discussed quite a bit. And someone thought it was the one of the corners that used to be the Nova shop. And I can't remember where that was, but it's on Broadway on the south side, I believe. 
that has the angled windows. It might have been where American Shoe used to be or is still is there, maybe that corner. And did you find that or was that a Joan Stack edition to the show? <laughs> that was a Joan Stack edition. And I loved it, though. It's this harried woman with her groceries. And she's obviously, she looks like she's on her way home. And she's staring, you would think, longingly in this storefront window at these beautiful, stylish dresses. <laughs> and I, I just love the scene. I think it's great. Yeah, it's a perfect addition. Do you have a favorite moment in the show? Oh, oh my gosh. So Zach Wilmore came and did a TikTok video with his garment in the gallery space. So that was that was incredibly fun. He has over a million followers on TikTok and he brought his family. So that was a super fun afternoon. But we had the donor, the owner of the homecoming, the 1956 homecoming dress, the big poofy, pretty purple one. She and her husband were dropping off another piece to our collection. And I said, if you, they live in Jefferson City. And I said, oh, if you can stop by the exhibit, I would love to get a picture of you next to your dress. Because the original homecoming picture that they took in 1956 is on the sign for the garment. And she went to Helias and he did not, so he could not attend. So she had another date. And he had stopped by the house before the dance and took pictures. And we included one of those on the exhibit sign. And they stopped by the exhibit a couple of weeks ago. And Kevin was gracious enough to take a picture of them standing next to her dress. And they posted it on social media. It's just wonderful. They're they're just adorable. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. Kevin Walsh, we should say, who is a security person for the whole gallery. And in fact, I saw him when I was there and he said, she still fits it, you know, still fits the dress. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, that was that was so sweet because they married right after high school and have been together ever since. Well, you can visit the Moda 200 Missouri Style Makers, Merchants and Memories at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia through June the 17th. And this Saturday, May the 7th, there will be an open house with curator Nicole Johnston on hand to talk about the evolution of Missouri style and the state's apparel history. To find out more, go to shsmo.org. And Nicole, thank you so much for the tour and for taking time to chat this evening. Thank you, Diana. It was a pleasure. Every now and again, I get to do what I like to think of as the arts exit interview. The last interview that a notable arts person gives before they leave our community and head out into the world to unite and conquer new arts pastures. It's always bittersweet as talent should spread its wings far beyond our own community, but sad, of course, too, because then we can't seek them out on our own local stages or in our galleries. Anthony Blutter may not be broadly known across the Columbia community, but he is a significant presence in the Mizzou theatre and music community. And I have been following him for a few years as he performed on various Mizzou stages. Last time he was on this show, it was in the midst of the 2020 pandemic when he was being fabulous in an online musical called All the Spaces. Since then, he's been in multiple productions, of which I've seen him in the musical Rent, singing with the Odyssey Chamber music series, and he is always a towering stage presence. 
But his time at Mizzou is coming to an end. And this summer, he heads to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton in Florida to pursue an MFA in acting. So it is a delight to welcome back to the show, Anthony Coleman Blotter. Hello and farewell, Anthony. Hello. (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) So you arrived here as a bouncy freshman from Parkway Central High School in Chesterfield back in 2017, way back in the before times. And now (laughs) half a decade has gone by and you have racked up a ton of accolades, awards, performances, and like all of us, probably a fine collection of face masks. (laughs) What would you go back and tell that freshman? Wow. Wow. Um, five years really flew. And I would say to my 18 year old self to really take your time and to not rush a darn thing because it's all going to fly. And so every moment that I've had here has been, um, you know, in in the midst of if it's classes and then, and then I'm off to a rehearsal and then I have to practice for this and da, 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 da. But I sometimes, wasn't able to take the time to slow down and really say, wow, this is something that I'm going to cherish for the rest of my life because you only get one undergrad experience and then you're off doing the rest of life. And so, yeah, just to slow down and really take it all in everything. But realistically, I mean, did you ever have time to slow down? No, (laughs) (laughs) not at all. Not one bit, which I loved. I, I loved the the fast-paced busyness of what it means to be a music and theater student here at the University of Missouri. It's truly been a blast. The opportunities, the expectations, the um, countless concerts and things like that, the traveling, it's all been a blast. And yes, it's been fast-paced, but I've enjoyed it all. It's super fun. We all have expectations when we enter a new phase of life. And I'm curious how Mizzou stacked up for you compared to what you expected going into it? It has been everything and more. When when looking at schools, I, I needed to be in a, in a place that accepted me for me and allowed me to do me. And Mizzou Music, Mizzou Theater has really welcomed me with open arms to be myself. And so the countless opportunities to perform to act, to be on stage, to do any and everything has been just a blessing because you don't get that everywhere. And in this town of Columbia, Missouri, which I can proudly and happily call home here, the opportunities have been endless. And that's all you can want really in a in an undergraduate experience. Well, you have been nominated, applauded, awarded so very many times over the past few years. Tell me about some of the accolades that have meant the most to you. Hmm. Well, summer of 2018, I won first place in National Nats, the musical theater section of National Nats. And that was mind blowing, truly, because it, it allowed me to go, okay, I'm, I'm here. People see me for me and I can go on stage and kill it. And I gained a ton of confidence from that specific award. But most recently, It would have to be the feat of doing Rent in the fall semester, playing Tom Collins, Mm. and then playing Figaro in Le Noce di Figaro in the spring. Those two shows back to back, really, um, they were very difficult to do 
one against the other. You know, if I just did one and then a couple years later I did the other, it'd be a different story. But for me and, and the rest of these casts to do Rent in the fall and then a full 522-page opera in the spring, Italian opera, it was truly a, a feat that I was like, you know, looking back on it, I was just like, wow, I did that. And so I, I, I look forward to to the other shows and the other projects that are coming up because I know that I can do anything now that I've done those two shows back to back because they were just monsters in their own rights. There is a lovely quote on your Facebook page from your voice teacher, Mizzou Associate Professor Stephen Tharp, who said, if it seems like everything is going Anthony's way these days, maybe it's because he works his butt off and always readies himself for the next great step. And that really comes across in all of my interactions with you and seeing you on stages. What are the things that really drive you? That quote made me cry when he wrote it on Facebook, and I'm tearing up over here now because... You know, you put in the work and you do the things and not all the time is it recognized. You know, you get the good jobs and the congratulations and things. But to have to have him say that on my Facebook page was just very uh, and it causes a lot of emotions because it's like, man, you see me. But to the original question of, of what drives me, it's the fact that I I can wake up every day and know that I'm doing what I love. It doesn't matter how much money I'm making. It doesn't matter where I'm living or or how I'm living or or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm doing what I love every single day of the week. And I can be a shining light for someone in the audience. You know, someone told me the other day, just in a general conversation, we as musicians and as artists never know who we're going to touch ever. We don't know how one instance on stage might touch somebody. And so knowing that, that I can do what I love and give that back to the younger generation or people who just needed to hear that specific song or, or, you know, or needed to see that scene or whatever, being able to do that brings me so much joy and that, and that drives me every day to wake up and do what I do because it's, it's a blast and to know that I touch people or that I may be touching people is awesome. Hmm. Talk to me about your voice. You have a voice that straddles opera and musical theatre. You are a bass baritone. But at the age of, are you 23? Yes. At the age of 23, your voice is still very young, as bass voices don't usually mature until around 30 or older. So where do you want to take your voice over the next few years? I am hoping. First off, let let me say this. I love that I have been given the opportunities to do both Mm. because that's not everywhere. But the the fact that I can, like I said earlier, go from a fall rent to a spring Figaro really says something about this university and these two departments that they let that happen. I am really looking forward to see where my voice goes in the upcoming years because yeah the male voice doesn't stop until early 30s mid 30s so i could be continually changing until then and i'm hoping that it goes up <laughs> just it's for me <laughs> like i love having rich low notes but i would love to have a confident comfortable g g sharp a 
up top because it opens a lot of repertoire, a lot of characters that I can't necessarily play to their full potential at this moment in time. Do you control that or is that just your genetic makeup? Sort of, kind (laughs) of. With Professor Tharp, we work every day with warm-ups and things that are sort of stretching my vocal cords in the upper range. Mm. And so you you work on what you have, which I have a pretty decent low range and, and mid range. So you work on what you have and then you do exercises and things, vocal exercises that, that help stretch the upper range. So hopefully in time, my vocal cords go, you know what? The stuff you've been practicing, that's where we want to go. And so, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so they stretch enough to where I can do those things vocally. Hopefully. Who knows? Well, let's take a listen to a clip of you singing. This is recorded earlier this year, and it is the song Funny from the musical City of Angels. Funny. How'd I fail to see this little bedtime tale was funny? I could cry to think of all the irony I've missed. What an unusual twist. Right at the end of it, funny. Who could see that this pathetic scene would be so funny? Once you strain to find the grain of humor underneath, life double crosses with style, forcing you into a smile. So it can. Kick you in the teeth Just desserts We can all laugh till it hurts At my expense I'm accustomed to working on spec I always pick up the check I think it's funny top or make this comic opera more compelling once you weave in some deceit to even up the score you'd have a soul on the floor that would be roaringly funny sad enough my life's a joke that suffers in the telly Just another hoary chestnut from the bottom drawer I heard so often before That I can't laugh anymore And that was my guest Anthony Blodder singing Funny from City of Angels. So this summer, you are heading off to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton in Florida to pursue an MFA in acting, which is almost a little surprising as I thought for sure you'd be going off to do an MFA in voice. Tell me about this choice. I was an actor lover first. And so going into an acting program and really fine-tuning a lot of the the things that I have and then 
completely reworking and reworkshopping the bad habits that I have is what I truly want to do. I, I want to I want to get this MFA in acting to really find myself as an artist and then the sky's the limit after that, you know, get this degree, possibly go get an MM in vocal performance in opera or musical theater or go to Germany or get my doctorate. It it truly doesn't matter, but I'm I'm going to continue to do all the things that, that I love doing. And this is just one little step in that career path. So many exciting possibilities. Right? Ah. <laughs> it's been a tumultuous few years in the world of social justice and the arts commitment to transforming its historically white performance spaces to be inclusive, not only of black and brown bodies, but also black and brown stories has been under the spotlight. As you step out into your career, how confident are you that performance spaces are truly going to follow through on their commitments to be more inclusive and diverse spaces? Oh, they definitely will. We are seeing it happen before our eyes with Hamilton, with Joshua Henry on Broadway, with Waitress. We are seeing black faces in what seem to be white roles happening but before our eyes. I hop on YouTube and I, I look up classical songs, and most of the time, I see white faces doing these arias and, and these art songs and things like that. But more and more, I'm seeing more and more black and brown folks who are stepping into that and doing those songs, and I'm, and I'm seeing videos with people that look like me, right? Mm. And that that is the most important thing, that we are seeing people that look like us on stage in those roles, because then that tells us, okay, you know what? I can do this too, because I see them doing it. But we are seeing shows, fire shot up in my bones, thoughts of a colored man. We're seeing all these wonderful, wonderful shows and, and, and operas being produced with all black production staff, with all black characters and, and actors. And it's truly a world that I'm excited to step into and a career path that, that I just, I, I can't wait to start and really sing my teeth into. Final question. <clears throat> will you still accept my emails when you're famous? Of course I will. <laughs> you better email me. <laughs> my guest has been Anthony Bladder, frequent performer on Mizzou stages over the past five years and also seen on the Odyssey Chamber Music Series stage. He leaves Mizzou this month and heads off to Florida to pursue his MFA in acting. And I feel sure he is destined for a career that is full of accolades. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the Arts Exit interview and for making time to chat and happy graduation. Thank you so much. Last October, the North Village Arts District received a fabulous windfall of $231,530 donated to the Arts District by the Veterans United Foundation as part of its $10 million giveaway to nonprofit organizations in celebration of its own 10-year anniversary. It was a huge amount for a small organization and with the huge gift came the equally huge responsibility of how to allocate those funds and how to allocate them transparently. 
The idea that such a generous gift might come their way was, I'm sure, beyond anyone's wildest dreams when the North Village Arts District was founded back in 2009. But when that opportunity came along and the organisation was nominated by the employees of Veterans United to receive a gift from their anniversary purse, the idea of creating an art walk of public and interactive art became a viable reality for the Arts District, the footprint of which covers College Avenue to 8th Street and from the alley just north of Broadway up to Roger Street. And tomorrow night on First Friday, the initial four artworks of the North Village Art Walk will be officially celebrated. And here to chat about the Art Walk project are the organisation's president, Tootie Burns, and one of the initial artists, painter Shannon Webster. Hello, Shannon and Tootie. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Tudy, I am so impressed that you have got this off the ground so quickly. When I spoke with Lisa Bartlett on the show last November, she was hoping to get things up and running as soon as possible. But at that point, there wasn't even a committee put together to oversee everything. So how did you make all this happen in just six months? Well, I think that's a good question, Diana, and I appreciate you using the words responsibility and unexpected when you talked about the gift from Veterans United Foundation. I give all the credit for getting us up and running so quickly to Lisa Bartlett. Lisa has made this happen, has stayed on top of things, has created a communication network that allows us to work in different committees and um, work with the artists in order to get these projects off the ground. And as you know, we have a tremendous arts community in Colombia. And so as soon as the announcement was made that we received the funding, we started having people contact us. (laughs) And so we quickly formed a a committee of nine um, people in the North Village Arts District and outside of it that we felt would be able to move nimbly and help us with the project. And so through that group and through the commitment of artists like Shannon, we were able to start projects almost immediately. And we are thrilled to be able to have these four projects to unveil at First Friday tomorrow. Again, going back to that conversation with Lisa last November, at that time, there were not any specific sites picked out and there had not yet been any conversations with property owners about locating an artwork on their property. How have those conversations gone, Tutti? Well, you know, we looked at private property ownership first and John Ott has been very generous and has been a part of the North Village Arts District in his ownership of property and support of the arts for many years. So we approached John about uh, these first projects. But truly, Diana, we had looked around the area because this has always been a dream to have a sculpture walk or a sculpture arena down here. And we had ideas, of course. We just didn't have any money. <laughs> and with this very generous funding, we were able to work with property owners owners that um, were interested in and understood the concept of an art walk and how it enhanced the area of the North Village Arts District. The four artworks that are being officially, I don't know if launched is the right word or celebrated tomorrow night, are just the first of what you hope I think will be 10 to 15 public artworks created by both local and also regional artists. Tutti, talk about how you chose these four artists and what process you went through to choose them? One of the first charges to the committee was to put out a call for interest. So, you know, an RFQ, an RFP, if you will, 
from artists that wanted to participate in the project, not necessarily specifically with a site-specific mural or or sculpture, but just, yes, I'm interested in being considered for one of these projects. And we had a, a very good response. You know, I think, gosh, almost 20 artists responded to us um, indicating that they would be interested in participating in the projects. And so we kind of went from there. I think also on our committee, there is a, a pretty good knowledge of local and regional artists. So we also have um, talked with people on our own saying, hey, is this something you would be interested in participating in? But obviously, um, I would say, aside from Nathan Pierce, who's from Cape Girardeau, our other three artists are local. Did you talk to the property owners and say, hey, we've got this project for you, so that they had the chance to say, no, no, not that one. I want something else. I mean, how involved were the property owners in the choice of artwork that went onto their property? Not in the way that they had the ability to say, no, I don't want that sculpture. I want this sculpture. There was understanding that a sculpture would be placed like on the walnut patio where Nathan Pierce's sculpture is being placed or um, down on St. James where the steampunk sculptures are being placed. But no, the property owners have been very easy to work with and understanding and also accommodating and considering lighting and safety and easements and things like that. So we're lucky that so far with these four projects, it's been smooth sailing. So because it's on private property, when it comes to easement, do you have to confer with the city? Do they have to agree? That's more of the property owner. um, And they're aware of where electrical is. And it's more for the sculptures that we have to consider easements than for the mural projects. And safety is our main concern. We want to make sure that these sculptures are here for a long time and can be enjoyed by any number of people. At the same time, we are aware that people like to climb on things and people like to touch things. And so that that went into the consideration of where things were going to be placed is the safety of the public when they were interacting with the sculptures. Shannon, you are one of the initial four and you painted a 70 foot by 30 foot mural called Wishes and Reflections on the east facing wall overlooking the Wabash Courtyard, which I think of as the fretboard coffee garden and also very conveniently next door to your studio. Tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, the actual wall itself is 30 by uh, 70, but uh, of course the artwork's a little bit smaller than that. When I was Applied to be one of the muralists. I I really didn't have experience with large paintings, but nothing quite like that. So I had some time to come up with some different concepts and probably took two or three weeks with different ideas and then presented the one I liked the most to the board. And then it kind of all happened from that point on that they accepted what I wanted to do. And we had to get going on materials and how to actually make this happen because that was the very first project out of all of them, I believe. Had you had past experience painting outdoor murals? I've done indoor murals. This is the first outdoor mural and one of this size, like uh, most of them have been like the size of a wall in, in your house or something like that, maybe 20 by 10. But uh, this one's a little bit bigger. Well, and also being on an outdoor surface, I guess there's all sorts of other considerations you have to use in terms of preparing the surface, the kind of paints you use, how it's sealed. How complicated was all of that? Absolutely. The building owner, they were really helpful in taking on the surface prep part of it. 
something that size, putting the base coat of paint how I wanted it was very helpful. And they had people actually paint that part for me instead of me doing that to save me some time. Um, me selecting the, the different types of materials that I knew would have some longevity that aren't just going to wash away in a, a few days or a year or so. Um, it took me a while to do some research with that, but uh, I think so far so good. Describe the work for us. So down in this courtyard setting, it's all these beautiful old buildings that have been redone. And uh, I kind of wanted something that fit in naturally with the setting versus something that was distracting and self-promoting. So uh, I chose to create what looks like a, a on this empty brick wall, what looks like a old warehouse windows that you see around the neighborhood. And uh, along with that, with lack of trees and, and green areas down here too, I chose to paint a tree along with it. So the short answer is a, a big window with a big tree out front. Um, but if you take a closer look, in the windows are reflections, or soon will be when I'm finished, of uh, some of the bigger well-known buildings of downtown and the Mizzou columns and, and such. Uh, you'll see the reflections in the glass. And also on the tree, with a little bit of research, and there's several books about it too, it's a wish tree. So hanging on the branches are going to be painted in little strips of fabric or appears to be fabric or tags with wishes that I'm collecting from friends, family, and, and just anybody that's interested that I'll write their wish on these tags that will hang on this tree. There's a Japanese tradition and also a Irish tradition of a wish tree. Hmm. So that's my wish tree along with the warehouse windows. I am curious about the artist, Shannon Webster, as I remember your studio appearing one day and it seemed like it was a portal to an upscale Soho side street in Manhattan. Uh, what is your background as an artist and how are you here in Columbia? Oh, I appreciate that. Well, I, I went to art school at the university many, many years ago and I've worked mainly as a designer since out of college, but of course my passion has always been painting and and the fine art side of things. And I'm, I'm old enough and far enough along in my life to where I was able to start focusing on the, the fine art versus the commercial art. But I, I still do both at the moment. And uh, that studio opened when I first moved in. It was just an old garage door and an old building. And uh, so the owner of the building was nice enough to put a beautiful storefront glass in the front. And uh, that's how it is now. Yeah, it's lovely. I always think I'm going to be whisked away if I stand inside and suddenly come out and I'll be, in, say, in Soho yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Thank you very much. Tutti, besides Shannon's work, there is another mural by Adrian Luther and two sculptural works by Nathan Pierce, which you referenced earlier, and another one, the steampunk ones, by the late Stuart Sean Parker, who died back in December 2020. Tell us a little bit about these works and what made them appeal to the committee. Well, we were familiar with Nathan Pierce's work from his submissions for other city projects, and so there was a familiarity there. And basically the committee, and there is a subcommittee, which is the Artists and Site Committee, which I do not serve on, got together and I think identified the site and then determined the size and scope of a sculpture that might work there and determined that Nathan's piece might work, and so contacted him and he was able to supply us with the piece and installed it himself 
Um, that is something where he did send us a catalog and we were able to make a selection or the art artist selection committee was able to make a selection and choose. And the fact that he would install it was attractive also. Uh, with Adrian Luther, she also has done many public art projects around Columbia. And uh, when the opportunity came for the stairs between the Berry Building and Artlandish, and then we decided to wrap it around the equipment chair, the north side of that. So that one was just, we felt like if we're beautifying the area, let's continue with it. Shannon's was a wonderful surprise when he came up with this concept and it just blew everyone away. And I don't know if you've been able to come down, Diana, to, to take a look at things in progress because it really is a treat to see as things move along and you can see from start to finish and I'm amazed at the speed at which these have occurred. The steampunk sculptures, I think, have a really unique history in that they were part of the original art walk that was created by several artists and residents down here, I believe in the early 80s, maybe even the late 70s. I remember seeing a paper brochure that had different sculptures uh, stationed around the North Central and North Village area. So we were able to acquire and refurbish the Stuart Parker sculptures, and they will be installed down on St. James. And I think I like the idea that we've reached back into the original artwork that went on in the 70s and 80s and maybe even before, and then we're involving that in a current project. Creating and installing an artwork is just the very front end of that work's lifetime in the public eye. And one of the factors that the city's percent for art committee have to consider is the upkeep and the repair of all the public art they put into place. What discussions and plans has the North Village Arts District got for that long-term care? Because that's, that's an ongoing thing that goes way past the end of the initial project. Well, with the very generous gift from Veterans United Foundation, we do plan to reserve contingency funds. In our artist contracts, we address maintenance. And if, you know, gosh forbid that there was some type of damage to a sculpture, what would happen with that? Obviously, sculptures and murals are two very different animals. And I know there are many murals in town that have stood the test of time and have been up for 10 or 12 or more years. So we're hoping that we will prepare the surfaces, that the artists will create their work, and then seal the surfaces that will allow these murals to last a very long time and, and be around for the public to enjoy and also do appropriate maintenance and upkeep on the sculptures so that they too can stand the test of time. So they don't pass into the care of the city once they're up. They will permanently stay within the North Village Arts District care package. These first four works for sure. Now, as we look around the area and we look at other opportunities, possibly the Ameren site where we would be installing on city property, it would depend, I think, on the scope of the sculpture. We did have talked with Sarah Dresser at the Office of Cultural Affairs. She said, please don't give us any artwork. And so I'm not <laughs> quite sure what that means. Um, I'm sure she was just kidding. But we would have to uh, address that as we move into placement on other properties. Shannon, I don't know how involved you have been with tomorrow night's launch and all the plans, but tell us a little bit about the schedule of the events for the Art Walk kickoff celebration. Sure. Yeah, I do help the North Village Arts District with their website as well, uh, just volunteering my time. So uh, all the information is there. If you go to northvillageartsdistrict.org on the very front page, you can jump into the Art Walk section and it 
It has links to the four different pieces being presented or locations, I guess. And uh, also a link on directions how to get to each one. As far as there is a, an official art walk kickoff, which is going to begin up on Walnut Street where the Nathan Pierce sculpture is. And then once um, that kickoff happens, then everyone will kind of work their way around to the different locations. Um, I'll be down next to Fretboard Coffee with a table and a live band. Each of the four locations will have a live band and some snacks and literature, uh, more information about the pieces, and you can talk to the artists that will be there as well. So as long as the weather holds, it should be a really fun night and lots of extra excitement on what we normally have going on on uh, First Fridays. There is an artist application page on the NorthVillageArtsDistrict.org website. So I'm guessing, Tutu, that you're still accepting applications. Do you have a timeline for the next round of art installations? Do you have them already selected or is that an ongoing process? We are working on the next round of projects and hoping to have something similar to what we're having tomorrow night as far as a kickoff in later summer, maybe August or September. But no, it, we will take submissions continually of artists who are interested in participating. We'd love to secure some veteran artists, possibly some group projects. So no, we're wide open to anyone who would like to submit ideas for Art Walk projects. Perfect. Well, the North Village Arts District Art Walk kickoff celebration is tomorrow night from 6 till 9pm as part of the regular monthly First Friday events. Each of the four public artworks will have its own live music accompaniment. To find out more, go to northvillageartsdistrict.org or search for North Village Art Walk on Facebook. Tootie Burns and Shannon Webster, thanks for the updates on the North Village Arts Walk and congratulations on launching the first for tomorrow night. Thanks, Diana. Thank you very much. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, curator Nicole Johnston of the Missouri Historic Costume and Textile Collection, actor Anthony Blader, and from the North Village Arts District, Tootie Burns and Shannon Webster. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.